Thank you. You may be seated. I invite you to turn in your copy of God's Word to 1 Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 3, another of Paul's letters. We have been spending the, uh, the month of January talking, uh, as one church nerd here uh, loves to, uh, the purposes and the vision and the, uh, the, the values of the local church. And uh, we've covered a number of topics about our purposes, but to review, it is uh, put this way as far as our mission is concerned. Our mission, we're saying this could be true of a lot of churches, most churches, but how we capture it for ourselves here at Grace Presbyterian South Shore. Our mission is to make disciples of the Lord Jesus who reach for God's purposes in the transforming power of the gospel. And we talk about that reach, what is it that we reach for uh, individually and together as, a, as an entity is upreach in worship, inreach in community, outreach on mission, and then downreach we talked about last week in discipleship as we focus on our calling, our responsibility as, as followers. We said a disciple, is, uh, is, that's, that was our target focus last week, is someone who is actively following uh, Jesus, not, not just in name, but in, in person, in priorities, uh, not, not flawlessly, not perfectly, but consistently, sometimes painfully, sometimes joyfully, uh, following uh, Jesus. And, uh, and, and I was, you know, for those of you, uh, I'm going to speak to this in a second, but for those of you who are now in the digital age and are on social media, uh, you know that uh, in 2020, memes just exploded. They existed before that. Uh, but memes, uh, you know, are, are funny and uh, they're punchy and, you know, they're satire. And uh, before we had that, you know, before social media, before memes, uh, we had something called the far side. Anyone remember this comic? The far side in, in, in the 80s and 90s. Love the far side. I actually saw something somewhat akin to it. It's a comic uh, real similar to the far side this past week. So I want you to imagine this in your mind's eye, right? You've got two, uh, you've got two men sitting in tall back chairs in front of a fireplace, and above the, the, the fireplace chat that they're having, there's a, a mantle with a, a shotgun. And then instead of all of the deer and elk that you might imagine on the walls mounted, you see all these mounted street signs that are all blasted with buckshot. Uh, do not enter. Uh, speed limit this. Exit only. Uh, you know, exit or uh, left turn only. And the guy says, in, imagine in the caption, this is what he says. He says, I, I, I do love animals. I hate being told what to do. And, uh, okay, so maybe you didn't quite capture that in your mind's eye. But anyway, <laughs> I, I laughed out loud. Maybe you need to go look it up. I, I think we can all resonate. Some of you maybe don't love animals quite as much. But uh, at the end of the day, we don't love being, we hate, in fact, we're quite averse uh, to being told what to do. And, uh, and, and I think we, we can all point to different areas of our life, depending on who the authority is or what the rule is or, or you know, what, what, whatever, whether it's at a young age or an old age, we do not like being told what to do. Even if we plan to do it ourselves, even if we intended to, we were, we were glad to, all of a sudden we don't like it because someone already told, no, 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 I know, I know, I know. I was going to get around to that. I was going to do it. We don't like being told what to do. There is a tremendous, um, even radical responsibility as followers of Jesus, and, and yet at the same time, a tremendous liberty 
in following Jesus when he says, listen to me, follow me, surrender, yield, trust me. There is something radical and difficult. Nevertheless, it's hard when he says, I want you to forsake sin and selfish ambition and follow me. And then that sometimes means turn around. You know, we talked about this last week, a quote from Steve Smallman's uh, book, The Walk. This is what he says. I'll repeat it again this week. He says, the life of being a disciple is never presented as adding Jesus to the life I'm already living, but turning to Jesus and to walk in a new path. And we we're called to this. We have the opportunity. We have the responsibility. But we can't do it alone. That's why we do need the church. We need the community of fellow believers in this. And I love the church. I love this church. I love you. Uh, I probably don't say it enough. I love being the pastor of this church. I love you. And I cannot thank you enough for joining uh, together on mission and fulfilling the various responsibilities that we have. It is a joy to do this together. Thank you. Uh, there are so many gifted people down through the years that have been part of this body. Uh, some of them, some of them were, were very instrumental, and then God moved them on, sent them out. They're blessing uh, other people in other parts of the country even. But this has been a joint group effort. This church is not, I've said this before, I say it to myself, I say it to you, this church as much as I founded it as the planter, is not about me. This church is not about you or me. This church isn't just about a, a group of people coming uh, together to fulfill some kind of mission for us and what we desire or envision. This is something that we do together on mission and fulfilling those purposes for the glory of a God who's worth it. Whatever sacrifice, whatever it involves, if, if anyone is worth it, it is Jesus. And it's not, about, it's, not, it's not even about that glory temporarily. It's actually about a, a worshiping fellowship that will be for generations to come. Envision that, right? And may, may God bless us so that we would even be able to see it multiplied and plant other churches to serve other parts of our community. Again, generations ongoing. Now, our passage this morning uh, is 1 Timothy chapter 3. I'll read the whole chapter. This is where Paul is writing to, uh, to Timothy. And uh, he writes to him, who is now taking responsibility in the church uh, that was planted there in Ephesus. And he's already been talking about the responsibilities of various disciples at the various stages. Women, men, young, old, uh, married people, widows. He, he's already... He's going to be speaking in the, in the writing of this to Timothy, to all of them. But in chapter 3, there's a particular focus, and that is to the leaders that Timothy should be raising up. So, let me invite you to stand. Hear this, 1 Timothy 3, this is the Word of God. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to be the office of overseer, that is elder... He desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, 
not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Verse 8, Deacons likewise must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience, and let them also be tested first. Then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Verse 11, Their wives likewise must be dignified, not slanders, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness, he was manifest in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. That's Jesus. Let's join uh, a prayer. Uh, I invite you to you can go ahead and uh, have a seat. I invite you to join me. Father, we look to you right now. We look to you. We pray by faith as you had planted in our hearts and minds that uh, we could respond uh, with joy uh, and obedience to your word. I, I, I pray, God, that you... I would be working and bless this portion of your word to our lives so that we would be more like you, King Jesus. We pray in your name. Amen. Now, if you don't envision yourself uh, finding this to be relevant or applicable to your life and you're, you're tempted even to check out because you don't intersect with it, I want to remind you that elsewhere in 2 Timothy 3, we are told that all of Scripture is God-breathed and is useful uh, for teaching and reproof and for training. Uh, and godliness. So you, this is for all of us uh, this morning, whether right at this moment uh, you see yourself, uh, you, you know, as, 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 the, as the subject of what's in view. Now, um, there are three questions that I want to uh, take up, and they're listed in the order of service. I'll, I'll read them out for those of you who are, are joining us online. Here they are. The first question that I want to address is why leadership is important for the church. So this is for, for all, right? Why is leadership important? Second thing that I want to take up, the primary focus is, what are the qualifications and maybe even clarifications for these officers named here? And then the last thing is, who is significant and sufficient in the church? Who is significant and sufficient in the church? Why is leadership important for the church. First question. I don't know about you, but when things go right, I like to take the credit. And when things go wrong, I like to not take the credit. We like to blame shift, right? We like to do that. Uh, that is my clear pr preference in when I'm operating in the flesh. Why do we need leaders? Uh, so we can have someone to pin the blame on, right? Uh, no, that's not, that's not it at all. It's uh, to, uh, to have someone to praise. No, no, it's not that at all. It's about the responsibility, uh, it's, it's, it's about the need that we have for three things, okay? Here they are. They all start with a P. 
Number one, protection of health and integrity. This is why we, this is, this is not an exhaustive list, but here are some things that are very important. It's one of the reasons later that uh, he writes to Timothy in the next chapter to, to be careful about who you lay hands on. Don't be hasty about who you uh, ordain to these offices. The first is the protection of health and integrity. Without leadership, we lack vision and integrity. And in fact, even with leadership, this can happen. Even with recognized leaders, this can still happen, which is why we don't just need leaders, we need biblical, qualified leaders in place. If you want to see the culture or the health or the efficiency or the faithfulness of anybody, or that is entity or any group, if you want to see that body flourish, you put in place good leadership. Most Every year in the United States, for quite some time now, I'm sad to say, there have been more churches closing than opening. And this will be accelerated because of 2020 and COVID. There are upwards of three to 4,000 churches. There will be a whole lot of other entities and organizations and, and, and sadly enough, businesses, small businesses and other groups that go by the wayside because of this past year. But already, on average, prior to this past year, three to 4,000 churches in the United States close their doors. The number of churches that are planted is just shy of that number. So let me translate that for you. This is a problem. Okay? This is a problem not just for church-going people. This is a problem for the very culture and the, and, and the health of our society and families and, and such communities. It's a, it's a big problem. Many problems can be traced in this culture to the, well, to, to the convictions and the, the lack of culture from their leaders. So we, we need it to preserve health and integrity. Second thing I would say is why, why is it important? It's, well, prescription. Number two. We are, it's prescribed in Scripture. The Bible says that we need leaders. And we know the pattern of Paul is illustrated uh, here. It's enforced. When he was busy about the work of church planting, as he would go from various places, he would always underscore, like he is here with Timothy, that we need to establish, that you need to establish in those churches that were planted, elders and deacons, stewards, managers, uh, to help oversee the work, that it would continue. The third thing I would say is that uh, that's important about leadership is plurality, okay? Plurality. We need multiple people in leadership. Proverbs fifteen twenty two says, "Without counsel, plans fail, but with many with many advisors, they succeed." Now, how could this shake out? Because a lot of churches have varying degrees or varying uh, styles of of leadership in place. One would be a style of leadership that says, A, no one is to be a leader. If no one is the leader uh, or willing to lead, then you have inevitably uh, chaos at various sizes and scales. Big problems sometimes are small problems. And anybody who's ever tried to organize a baseball team or a bake sale knows that no one cannot be the leader. That didn't come out right, but you know what I'm saying. It's a problem. So you could say no one needs to be we're all we're all just a, a big family no one needs to be the leader well that that's not going to work we need a plurality second thing i would say is 
that some would suggest that it's just one that needs to be the leader. If there is just one leader, that too can open up all kinds of, of problems, problems of corruption, to say nothing of a cult of personality. That's why we embrace one of the reasons, many reasons that we embrace a Presbyterian form of government. Pres, presbyter is, is the word in the Bible for elder here, or an overseer, and that is we have a plurality of leadership. We do not have a pastor who is a CEO. I, my vote is, is equal with the other elders of this church when it comes to shepherding. There's no one bishop or CEO. We preserve checks and balances with that multitude, that plurality of elders. I, I happen to be the teaching elder, uh, which, which Paul talks of in the next chapter, uh, as, as, as reserving a place uh, of responsibility to pastor and teach. I'm the teaching elder, and we have... Uh, at present to other ruling elders. Now, the last thing I would say is you could have a, you could have a model where no one's a leader. You could have a pro, you could have a, a model where there's just one leader, or you could have another problem that would be where everyone's a leader. Right? If there are too many leaders or people who perceive themselves to be this way, that too is a problem. I had a friend who told me how he stepped into a church. And uh, most everyone thought of him, uh, himself that way. And, uh, and what became was most everyone at some point became a, a deacon or elder. Some of them didn't have a particular devotion or commitment to Christ. They were, they were even sporadic in their attendance of church. But they definitely showed up on the, the weeks where they had a board meeting because they viewed themselves as a leader. Oh, decisions need to be made. But that in lies and illustrates a problem when there's not character in that leadership. So there's a whole lot of other reasons I could say leadership's important, but I wanted to just touch on those few. The preservation, the prescription that's laid out in Scripture, and then last, the plurality. Now, moving on to my next big heading question is what are then the qualifications and even some of the clarifications we would make concerning these offices of deacon and elder as Paul writes. The qualifications for both deacon and elder, I believe, relate to a man's relationship to these three areas. Personal life. Here's how I wanted to, to condense it down. Personal life, family life, public life. Personal life, he needs to manifest the things that portray one who is walking in step with the Spirit. Not perfectly, but as a pattern, consistently. The fruit of the Spirit, the love of the right things, self-control, gentleness. He is one who is peaceable. He doesn't stir up dissension. Both texts, I should say both descriptions, if you're looking at your text, verses 1 to 7 as it pertains to overseer, elder, the second, verse 8 and on, that refers to deacon. In both of those descriptions, there's this mention of alcohol, substances, and sobriety. This is, this is a very common place, uh, in, as we know, but it's a bad place for therapy. Verse 9 says that they ought to have a clear conscience. Verse 10, blameless. And I think that there is a correlation to verse 2. Let's look at, uh, at verse 2, uh, that he must be above reproach. The overseer, therefore, an overseer must be above reproach. I think that, that really that phrase is listed there as kind of the drunk drawer of all other things that, that people can do that are really stupid, right? That, that are commonly understood to be uh, bad, unbecoming. Not, not fitting, 
that they need to be above blame or above reproach because there's a lot of things that humans are stupidly capable of doing, I know. Now, and that's not to say that they never do any of those things, but to the degree and the extent that they, they might, they do, they find themselves guilty, uh, of, then there needs to be consistency and repentance when there is failure in their personal life. There's just a snapshot, personal life. Second thing, their family life. Verse 4, pertaining to the elder, he must manage his household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. And then verse 12, as it pertains to the deacon, these correlate. Let the deacons be the husband of one wife, managing their children with their own household well. Now, I, you know, I think it, it makes complete sense, right? Men, whether they're officers in the church or not, ought to be servant leaders in their home and in their marriage. And that's a beautiful thing when it happens. Not, not, not commanding authority and not... Not, not, but, but one who, who deals and leads as a servant leader and cares for their family. Verse 2, elder. Verse 12, deacon. Both mention that they should be the husband of one wife. Now, it's not saying, hey, as long as you're not a polygamist, you can be qualified for this office. Another way of understanding or translating this phrase is a one-woman man. The, the character of this potential officer is one who is operating with fidelity and sexual purity. This man is not sharing intimacy with any other woman. Furthermore, if a man cannot shepherd, this is it, as it pertains to family life, that is kind of a crossover of, of, of personal life and family life, but if he can't manage, he says here, he can't shepherd, he can't care for, he can't teach and guide his own family, in a way that's compelling, then we have a problem because verse 5 says, as plain as it sounds, it's important that he states it. Verse 5, he says, For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? Seems to, to make sense. Now, in all the things that we've already covered, and let me move on to public life here. Public life is how this person relates to those entirely outside the church, their reputation with their neighbor and with their co-worker and with their cousin, and you get the picture, right? Whatever realm they find themselves in, and if they, if they weren't operating, again, above reproach, they didn't have uh, a, you know, a, reputable, uh, reputa- a good reputation, otherwise there would be disgrace brought on Christ's church. They must be known to have integrity and honesty in all areas, Right In the workplace, in, in their neighborhood, in, in their community, their, their family, they should be known, even to those outside the church, as one who is, has integrity and honestly. Now, sadly enough, I've, even, you know, I, I've seen the failings of even those who are elders, teaching elders, pastors. I, even in our own presbytery in the, the last year and a half, our presbytery is the regional body. We've had to, to go and investigate charges against Men, elders who have not dealt well in the realms of, of their marriage or their money, and some of them have been restored and have repented and acknowledged that it did, in fact, bring shame on Christ and His church because of the choices that they made, the failures. Now, out of all things listed here underneath these headings of the personal life, family life, public life, did you happen to notice something that is missing from both of these lists as it pertains to deacon or elder? 
a job description. <laughs> There's something missing. There is no job description detail. There's very little focus here on what these officers do. There's much more of focus on their being, not their doing. I think this is, a, this is designed by God, inspiring Paul who writes this, to underscore the importance of character. That godliness is more important than giftedness. Let me say that again. Godliness is more important than giftedness. It's one of the reasons that there's so much similarity, frankly, to the list of verses 1 to 7 and 8 through 13, elder or deacon, again, because character matters. And it's more important than in, in the church than any other institution or group or body or organization. It's not what a man is with skill and talent. It's what a man is becoming because of the grace of God working in him. Which is not to say that we do not in any way devalue training or, or equipping or studying about the competency and the skills, but that it's grounded in character. Character is the seat of trust. And we must have trust. It's one of the things that is a distinguishing characteristic of the church as an institution. Godly character may be devalued elsewhere, but it cannot in the church. If you work and, and, and you serve and you function in a vocation as a busy, whatever, fill in the blank, banker or attorney, if you are unfaithful in your marriage and you do not prioritize your family, you might get a promotion. Think about that. If I do that, may God never let it happen. My ministry is ruined. I'm disqualified, our church suffers, and there's shame brought on Christ and His church. Please pray for me. Pray for our elders and deacons. Moving on. Though Although it's not expressly stated here, there are other places in Scripture and even in the practices of the early church that provide us a great deal of guidance, even if it's by inference as to what these offices do. So I do want to touch upon it, characters in view, but there are some duties and distinctions that elders and deacons have in view. The office of elder uh, has primarily been focused on the ministry of the word and in prayer. Uh, the deacons are the servants who tend to matters of deed and practice. And even though spiritual maturity and knowledge of God's character and word are very important for both, uh, that which is, which is clearly the case, it does say that elders should be, in our text here, verse 2, apt or able to teach. It doesn't mean that they're a good public speaker, perhaps, but it does mean that they're able to communicate and dialogue and to counsel people with and from God's Word. And then, and then next, the office of deacon or a, a servant uh, is supporting the function of the church, caring for the practical needs of a local church. And that would depend, of course, also on the context of a particular local church as to how they would uh, serve in that role. The elder provides shepherding for souls. The deacon provides care for the lives and the operational function of a local church. And both are so, so crucial. Deacon, in other words, is not a second-rate elder or a junior varsity. It's not a, it's not a distinction. It's not a lesser role. It's a different role. Now, I want to highlight one of the verses here at uh, verse 11. Their wives must be dignified, not slanderous, sober-minded, faithful in all things. 
Now, there are, there are multiple options as to how that, that, that word wives can be translated, which is really the word, they're just woman. The, these women that he's referring to could be one of three things as, it, as it's interpreted. The first is the wife of a deacon, literally a single wife, the spouse of a deacon. It could mean a woman who is a deacon, a deaconess, and functioning the same manner, in essence. Thirdly, it could be a woman who assists the deacons and elders in the important role of ministry. And I would say as specifically and most importantly as it pertains to ministering to women. I I believe that all three have a legitimate uh, place of of interpretation. Wise thought, knowledgeable Christians, you know, have differed on this one, I think, for good reason. But I think we have in our tradition the conviction that the, the third option is the best. So we are going to do uh, our very best to recognize and to train women to serve in leadership as a church. We are not in any way concerned or resistant to women being in leadership. In fact, it, it, it's the, the byproduct of that, you know, by and large, as you look at the Church of Christ globally, even in our own, um, you know, broader, in the broader sense of America, it's estimated that 60% of churches are women. Throughout the history of the church, by God's good design, women have and will continue to serve as leaders, but not as officers. I obviously could say a whole lot more about that, and there's a great deal of discussion, and I'm not the least bit shy about where we stand and how to explain it and how to unpack it and how to help walk with people who have differences with that. But it's very clear that these three areas of qualification as it pertains to a number of churches, um, I, I want to help. I want to I guide us. I want to bring, bring clarification. Even this week, as you'll look there, that the, the link that's the nominating form gives a little more direction as to what we have in view as it pertains to the offices. So I, I, I encourage you, as you think of questions, I want to be a resource. Our other uh, elders would, would be glad to answer questions and to provide clarification as, you, as things come to mind. Even differences. Now, the last question is this, and I think this is the most important for all of us to think about in the broader picture, and that is, who is significant and who is sufficient? Who is significant? Everyone is. Let me just let me track, track with me, if you will. Philippians 1.1 says this. As Paul writes to the local church, he says this. To all the saints in Christ Jesus who were in Philippi, with the overseers and deacons. So three groups, right? He has the three groups there. The, the saints, the elders, and the deacons. And all three are essential and crucial. Everyone is significant. The saints are those who are redeemed by Jesus, and that includes, of course, the elders and deacons, obviously. But the saints are those who are redeemed by Jesus. They serve in all sorts of roles as teachers, as community group leaders, team leaders, women's ministry leaders, a whole host of things you know, that are behind the scenes or are very, very public and, and very much oriented towards the, the, the managing and leadership. But every member is a part of the ministry of the church. It's not something that, that leaders or officers do. No, that's not the case at all. The, the, the elders and deacons, the officers, only help make sure it's being done. 
and helping work alongside of others to carry out the ministry. Does that make sense? Now let me just pause here for a moment to talk about, as it pertains to our local church and this process, some logistical and practical things. Who can serve in this capacity? A man who meets this criterion, obviously, who goes through a process. I myself, as the pastor of the church, as the, of the church, as part of the, uh, you know, this the safeguard of the of the process. I cannot nominate anyone. That is your, that is your responsibility. That is your liberty, and opportunity. So we're going to open it up as a church for three weeks. Uh, then in March we would. Uh, for those who agreed to it, and even those who weren't nominated, frankly. We'll have a season for, for anyone in the church who wants to go through the leadership training, which will last for several months. And then at the close of that training, those who are ready to stand, who are, are willing, they, 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 may, they may be uncertain at the beginning, but in the process it comes into focus. Yes, I do want to stand for election. It's only then that we would, get, we would have after the training an election. And that, again, is the distinct responsibility, not of me, but of you as a congregation to elect officers. Now, I want to say this too, and I, and I say that to say, here's a big picture, but you really need to be in prayer. We need, we have, we have, I've, already, I've already encouraged you to do this, and I just want to underscore again the importance of praying for God's Spirit to guide and prompt and work through this process. It's, it's, it's not flawless, but I want it to be Spirit-filled and, and covered in prayer. One other thing I think that's really important on how and why we approach this, uh, it just, just to reinforce this thing, this is very important, that there is such a thing that has to come into view that is both the internal sense of calling and the external calling. Internal calling and external calling as it pertains to these offices or capacities. One, one of those calls might be stronger than another, Right? You, you, you could have a strong sense, and then other people around you are like, I don't know. And then you might be saying, everyone's telling me I should be, you know, be doing this, but I, I don't feel there yet. You see what I'm saying? That, that, uh, that distinction, though, is important. The internal is commended, and it's very obvious, the internal desire. In verse 1, it says, if anyone aspires or desires this office. That's not a bad thing. Now, here's my second question. Here's where I close. Who is... That, that's who's significant, everyone. But I want to I think about who is sufficient. As we think about the church thriving and surviving and flourishing and doing our mission, who is sufficient for these things? No one is. No one is sufficient, but indeed the head of the church. Who is Jesus? We read it earlier, Colossians. Jesus is the head of the church. I'm so glad because he is the perfect head, the perfect authority, the perfect leader, the perfect one. Because he demonstrates love and action by being both an elder and a deacon. He's a deacon, yes. Mark 10, 45 says that the Son of Man did not come to, to be served, but to serve, diakonos. To give his life as a ransom for many. And Jesus is an elder. But the, the Bible goes further. It says that he is the chief shepherd, 1 Peter 5 says. And John 10 says that he is the good shepherd. And that's good news. And it's maybe a good reminder because some of you have been in churches and places where there have been manipulative, misguided, bad leaders, teachers, pastors, shepherds. Even in places where you've had a good elder. 
a good pastor, good shepherds that were strong and sound and healthy, it's still only Jesus who is perfect and sufficient. Perhaps our brief reflection, I don't know, for you this morning, even as we think about qualities and characteristics and Maybe you've taken just a little bit of inventory of your own, your own life, maybe your, your own character, and I don't know where that leaves you, right? If you really take some honest assessment, who am I? Where am I? How am I following Jesus? Where am I being really ticked off about being told what to do when Jesus says, follow me? <laughs> All right? What sign do you want to shoot up? What sign do you want to shoot up? Forgive your enemies? Love them? Maybe it's the ones that are hard as it pertains to integrity or purity or generosity or hospitality or self-control. Whether it's discouragement that you're feeling right now or maybe it's a a distinct hunger for some kind of self-improvement or maybe it's a temptation to, to to be comparative right now to other people that you think of. Let me encourage you to take your eyes off of yourself and off of anyone and everyone else. And I want you to set your eyes on Jesus. It was a Scottish Presbyterian pastor, Robert Murray McShane. He died when he was like 30. He was a wonderful elder, shepherd. McShane left us with one quote that's become quite famous, and I think for pretty obvious good reason. He says this, kind of goes like this. For every look at yourself, take ten looks at Christ. For every look at yourself, take ten looks at Christ. It's a short but sticky quote that helps us to not fall into too much self-introspection on our own faults or, or even, frankly, our own successes, our own sins, and look Jesus. Take one look at your sin, repent of it, then take a thousand glances, a thousand gazes on Christ who by faith knows you and loves you and loves me. So as we close, I want to read a portion of scripture. I'm going to ask you to close your eyes just to contemplate how this correlates with who's sufficient and who's significant in the church. So just close your eyes and we're going to pray in a moment. I want to read this, Philippians 2. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourself. Let each of you look not only to your own interests, but also the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Father, in our knowing, in our being, in our doing, shape us more into the image of Christ. Please accompany this, our church. No, no, your church. Accompany your church with the power of your Holy Spirit that we might fulfill our mission 
with great faithfulness, not, not just for seasons to come, but for generations. Teach us, Lord, to pray and help us to teach young ones in our church to do the same by faith. Lord, we know how much we need you. May we become even more acquainted in our prayerful dependence and in our humility to cry out to you in this next season as we look to train and equip future officers. Lord, as we look outside the, the church, we know in our communities there's a great needs. Lord, we live in a divided and a very confused time, and you know there are many threats and much confusion. There's anger. There's a great deal of moral corruption, even with leadership. Be merciful, Lord. Please bring humility and love and peace. Lord, we pray today for the global church as well. Last week we prayed for other churches in our area, but we pray even for the global church because they faced as well a pandemic and many of them have even less resources. Even worse, they have persecution and opposition in very intense forms because of their communities and their government. But they do have the same enemy, and so we pray you'd preserve them in perseverance by faith. Would they honor and glorify you? And would you comfort them and strengthen them? Father, please be working through every means possible in medicine and science and logistics to bring relief and healing. We long for the day when this and any other pandemic would be ended completely. Help us to wait and to navigate with wisdom and patience and be a people who long for the coming of Jesus again when he makes all things right and new. Thank you, God, for answered prayer in our church, in our midst, for bringing health and stability to some and peace. But to those who don't have it, I pray you would minister. Encourage them. You would pull them up out of their, their depressions and anxieties and temptations. Lord, thank you for bringing new life to our church family and even the presence of Little Leo Troy with us today, Lord, we thank you. We pray even this morning for other unborn children. We pray for other couples who are expecting or hoping to adopt soon. We pray for the Peacocks and the Davenports and the Gipes. Encourage them. Prepare them. Guide them. Lord, we look to you even now. We know that prayer is important. We know that prayer works and we know that it's something you've called us to on a regular basis. And you gave us a pattern and you gave us an outline. And so even now we close with that as the Lord Jesus taught his disciples saying, Our Father, 